He was known as the Bionic Man. Gentlemen, we can rebuild him. We have the technology. Not that Bionic Man. This Bionic Man. If Tommy John has it below the belt buckle all night, he'll be a very tough fellow to handle. Tommy John pitched 26 years in the big leagues. He has the third most wins, 288, of any pitcher since 1900 that's not in the Hall of Fame. 164 of those wins came after the surgery that bears his name. And he's my guest this week on the Lost Ballparks podcast. This is Harry Carey with Jack Buck and Jerry Gross from the beautiful new Bush Memorial Stadium. And boy, I tell you, this is some sight. The crowd still is coming in. The bleacher area is going to feel almost filled. And the indication is that it's going to be a fine Friday night crowd here at the Polo Grounds. We're underway in the first of a twilight doubleheader at Tiger Stadium. Greetings, baseball fans. This is Mel Allen greeting you from Yankee Stadium in New York City. Yep, and I'm Schaefer Brewing Company. Very happy to be pouring it to you from Ebbets Field tonight. And there should be a humdinger. Good afternoon, everybody. This is Al Helfer with Art Gleason bringing you Mutual's Game of the Day from Sunny Shy Park in the city of Philadelphia. Just the start of things. Go pull up a comfortable chair. If you want to take your shoes off, go ahead. Wiggle your toes, and we hope you'll have a cold shape or two throughout the evening. Hi, I'm Mike Kozer, and welcome to the Lost Ballparks podcast. Our guest today was a four-time All-Star, pitched in three World Series, threw 162 complete games, and finished his 26-year career with 288 wins. Hello. Tommy John. Uh, That would be me. How you been? I've been very, very good. Thank you. Your dad built a house when you were a kid that combined two lots, leaving you with a pretty good-sized backyard, and it was there that your imagination could really flourish. When you were playing ball back there with your friends, with your buddies, what ballparks did you imagine that you were playing in? Do you remember? Well, I was a Chicago Cub fan, and I was a Philadelphia Philly fan, and we played in Wrigley Field and Scheib Park. Like many kids growing up in the 40s and 50s, radio was a big part of your life. Who were some of the broadcasters, Tommy, that you would listen to call games? Jack Brickhouse. Well, God bless him. It's a beautiful day. Dizzy Dean. And a Lou with two strikes on him now, friends and neighbors. Get this, with two strikes on him and a man on first base, he bunted down the third baseline and beat it out for a hit. Pee Wee Reese. Yes, sir. Then a fastball, he could have very easily bunted that ball foul. You know, back then, there was only one game a week on Saturday TV. It is a cool and crisp day in San Francisco, California, where the baseball fans are wondering what has happened to our Giants. NBC Sports presents baseball's game of the week today from Candlestick Park. That was it. The rest you have to pick up on radio, so you probably heard uh, Harry Carey call Cardinals games from Sportsman's Park. Why are we going to the top of the fourth? The Cardinals trail three to two. Harry Carey a bunch and Jack Buck. Here's the pitch. Way over his head and back to the screen. The ball missed everything. It missed Sawatsky's glove, Holler's head, and the umpire's mask. And Joe Garagiola. A beautiful day for baseball here in St. Louis. When you were a kid, Tommy, growing up in Indiana, you played Little League, and your team sponsor, I think, was Art Compton Cleaners, and they would yes. take they would take you and your team to doubleheaders at Cincinnati's Crosley Field. What do you remember about those experiences traveling with your team to, to Crosley? Well, I remember my dad driving, and there were other fathers driving, and we'd park and have a picnic in the cars. 
you know, and then we would go in and watch a ball game. Good afternoon, everybody. This is Ben Scully speaking to you from Crosley Field in Cincinnati with Jerry Doggett and Al Helfer on hand as the Brooklyn Dodgers and Cincinnati Redlegs about ready to wrap up their three-game series this afternoon. The first time you remember walking into Crosley Field, what was that like for, for a kid your age? I, I just looked around and saw beautiful green grass, and then the outfield had those terraces at the old Crosley Field. Yeah, probably made you glad that you were a pitcher and not uh, <laughs> not not a left fielder running up the terrace toward the scoreboard. You got that right. Did you try to get autographs after the game? Because Crosley Field had a unique configuration in that the clubhouses were behind the grandstand and you had to walk through the stands, through the fans, and out to, into the parking lot just to get to the clubhouse. Did you guys ever stick around to try to get autographs? Eh, we tried. Some guys signed, some didn't. And then my dad would say, let's go, boys. we got to get home. And so we had a five-and-a-half-hour drive from Cincinnati back to Terre Haute. You graduated, Tommy, in June of 61. And a week later, you and your dad were on a train headed to Cleveland to Municipal Stadium. And I mean, here you are. You walk into this cavernous ballpark that seated something like 75,000 fans at the time. But at the moment you're there, it's completely empty. What did you think? What did you think about Municipal Stadium? What stood out to you? It was huge. The roofs were very high. And then uh, I worked out. I threw batting practice. Then afterwards, I I went in the uh, dressing room and took a shower. And then my dad and I went up to Gabe Paul's office. And we met with Gabe Paul and a guy named Bob Kennedy. And Bob was the assistant farm director. Because the farm director was down in Mobile, Alabama, talking to a guy named Tommy Agee. Who would later be your teammate. He was my teammate, and then we were both traded to the White Sox. Tommy and I were together for, man, I don't know how many years. How old were you in, in June of 61? Would you Were you 17 at that time or 18? I was 18. I, I turned 18 in May. So in 62, you're pitching for the Charleston Indians, and some of your bus rides were, people don't realize, I don't think, the trips that minor league players have to take. Some of the bus rides were 12 hours long, and Louis Tiant, who was also on that Charleston pitching staff with you, would light up Cuban cigars, and I bet you can still remember that smell in the thick blue haze that probably lingered for hours on that bus with nowhere to go. Terrible. And he'd just sit there and smoke, and our manager was a guy named Johnny Lippon, he smoked cigars and the bus driver smoked cigars. So between the three of them, we had an absolute pool hall. <laughs> In September of 63, you get called up to the Indians. Yes. And your first game was on the road at D.C. Stadium, which was later named RFK. Now we're set to go here as the Senators uh, hope to salvage this final game of the series. I hope he's got a pocket full of runs and ready to go. John McLean, John. All right, Dan. Made some up special for our left home. Thank you very much and good evening, everybody. You almost didn't make it onto the field. Do you remember what happened down in the bullpen? Yes, I do. Nobody taught me how to open the bullpen gate. And they call me into the game and I'm just rattling the gate and I go oh no you know this is going to be so embarrassing <laughs> that they've got to come and haul me out and whatever and then all of a sudden it, by the grace of God the gate goes and it pops open and I trot out onto the field and go to my first major league uh, pitching performance yeah so thank goodness that gate finally opened huh 
<laughs> yeah, thank you. A quick note about clubhouses, Tommy, not just at Municipal Stadium, but Tiger Stadium, Comiskey, Old Yankee Stadium. What were some of the big differences between the clubhouses in the 60s compared to today? What do you remember the most about those clubhouses back in the day? They were small. They didn't have a lot of the things that they do today. The clubhouses now are chapels compared to what they were then. Which clubhouse was your favorite? Was there a place that you would go that you would, oh, they're going to have some good food and it was a comfortable clubhouse to sit in? Well, when you're a kid and you're in the big leagues for the first time, any of them were where you wanted to be, Major League Baseball. By 1965, you were pitching for the White Sox at Comiskey Park. Can you talk about that ballpark for a second? What, what do you think made Comiskey unique? What do you remember about it? It was big. The outfield fences were a long way from home plate, and which gave you as a pitcher a chance to be maybe not right on all the time. Did they have the exploding scoreboard then? Yeah, well, they did towards the end. Yeah, yes, they did. Yeah. Gary Peters, by the way, a pitcher on that White Sox team, was known for his practical jokes. Do you remember the <laughs> one that, that he pulled on Ed Stroud in the clubhouse? The octopus on him, yeah. Yeah, so Gary, oh, well, I, think he went, I think he went scuba diving one day. Gary Peters' practical jokes took a lot of effort. I mean, here he goes scuba diving. He finds a baby octopus. He goes through the trouble of bringing it back into the clubhouse, <laughs> puts it in seawater, and has it sit there for who knows how long. And the next, <laughs> next day... He throws it on Ed Stroud, and Ed Stroud was freaking out because he couldn't get the thing off of him. Ed Stroud was African-American. He was black. He threw that octopus on him, and he turned white. Oh, but, man. Uh, and it was probably spring training because Gary would go skin diving and uh, all the time. September 3rd, 1967 at Fenway Park, you threw a game that got you more than a pat on the back from manager Eddie Stanky. Um, you shut out the Red Sox four to nothing. And do you remember what you won that day? Yeah, I won a suit of clothes. I don't remember exactly the rules, but I think any pitcher who would throw a complete game and give up 20 or more ground balls, he would give a free suit. Is that right? That's right. But the key was you had to throw a complete game. And that was hard to do because our offense was not that good. And so you were being pinch hit for and all that. But I got two or three suits from Eddie. You would go down, pick it out, and he'd pay for it. Where was it at? Do you remember? Yeah, it was at Hart Shafter and Marks in Chicago where they had their corporate offices. And I think Eddie got them cheap. Do you still have any of those suits? You kidding me? <laughs> I outgrew those uh, <laughs> in a bit. In 1969, the White Sox changed the infield at Comiskey Park to AstroTurf. What did you think what? of that when they did that? Did that surprise you? No, no, because they wanted to be able to play games when it rained or in Chicago snowed. It's okay to have an AstroTurf infield, but you got to have infielders that have a great range. And we had the same old infielders, uh, Ron Hansen and Pete Ward and Let's see, who was the second baseman? Wayne Causey and uh, Tommy McCraw at first base, who had a good range of, you know. Yeah, AstroTour is fine, but you got to have, I would have the U.S. Olympic sprint team. Yeah, as your infielders. <laughs> yeah. In 1971, the Dodgers acquired you in a trade from the White Sox in exchange for Dick Allen. Did you like Dodger Stadium? What, what did you think of Dodger Stadium? What stood out to you about that ballpark? Loved Dodger Stadium. Uh, one, they had great Dodger dogs. The hot dogs were outstanding. 
the fans were very good, very loyal, very vocal. And I'm my my wife and I were talking about this yesterday or the day before. There was one of the jazz singers. She used to sit right by Dodger dugout and you'd come out. She loved Tommy John. And I can't think of her name now. Oh, Ella Fitzgerald. You're talking about Ella Fitzgerald. Yeah, that's right. Uh, you know, you would see guys there all the time. And then when Lasorda took over, you started to get the big names started to come out. Sinatra, Cary Grant, Don Rickles, Bob Newhart. Yeah, these guys would uh, just show up in the clubhouse, right? They would just show up. Yeah. And they were welcome. They they were welcome because Lasorda made them feel welcome. Yeah. In the 77 World Series, Game 1 does not go according to Lasorda's plan, so he brings in Don Rickles to speak to the team in the clubhouse before Game 2. Well, uh, what it was, Lasorda came in, and he's fuming and cursing and stomping, and we go, oh, no. And he said, you guys, you guys played that first game. Your butts were so tight, you couldn't have passed gas. And we're going, (laughs) he said, I contracted the best sports psychologist. He's going to work with you, you know, and we go, oh, geez, he's gone to University of Southern California or UCLA or someplace like that. And he's gotten some doctor and the door opens and walks Rickles. Walk away. It's over. And he went around and just roasted everybody, didn't he? Everybody. So what's new besides the competition? Except moi. When it comes to me, he goes, you. You, debt's paid because I helped dress him uh, one time in Los Angeles. I put his uniform on and made sure it was right. Uh, But Rickles was a very good friend. July 17th, 1974, at a game against the Expos at Dodger Stadium in the top of the fourth, you suffered an injury that would take you out of baseball for months. But its subsequent successful surgery, Tommy, would revolutionize the pitching position for decades to come. What do you remember about that moment? Did you know right away how severe it was? Nope. I just knew that I had never had pain like that in my left elbow ever. Yeah. And I threw two pitches. The second one was just a bloop to home plate. And I walk off the mound and Walt Alston passes me by. And I said, Walter, I've hurt my arm. Get somebody in. Yeah. And I go over and uh, our trainer was Bill Bueller. And I said, Billy, get Dr. Job. And he said, I've already signaled him. And I go into the locker room. Now, back in that day of 74, locker rooms were open to the press, all the media. So when I go into the trainer's room, here's all the press, TV cameras, and all this taking pictures of me. And Dr. Job is... um, He doesn't want to examine me and somebody would get something that might not be correct, but they're running with it because they thought they heard it or whatever. So he tells me, he said, look, uh, go take a shower and come see me tomorrow. And I said, okay. What I thought was interesting too, is the doctor at some point, because you know, you kind of want to know, am I going to pitch again? And at some point he says, that he thinks the chances of you pitching again with the surgery are one in 100. I think you might have asked, what are the chances if I don't get the surgery? And he says, zero in 100. Not great odds, but you liked the fact, okay, one in 100, so you're saying there's a chance. 
Well, you know, I was valedictorian in my high school class, and I know one in a hundred is far, far better than zero in a hundred. <laughs> right, right. After the surgery, the months of healing, how good did your arm feel once you started to get back? Did it feel better than before or the same or what? Well, it didn't hurt. The pain was gone. And it was six, seven weeks. And then he told me I could start throwing. So I started throwing to my wife. And I knew that, you know, I'm not going to throw hard to her. I moved up to my neighbor who played softball. And I threw to him in my, uh, we had a big backyard. I mean, not huge, huge, but big. So I'm throwing 60 feet, 70 feet, just playing catch, not pitching, just playing catch. And then we got to the thing that we had to go to spring training. And I go down to spring training at Vero Beach. And now we're driving and we go to Indiana because Indiana is on the way to Vero. We stop to see my family and my wife's family and friends. And then we head down to Vero. And what am I going to do? I take six brand new baseballs every day. And I take them out to the bullpen for the minor league guys to throw. There's a concrete wall. And they use it to work on double plays or whatever. And I threw against that wall every single day. I don't know, 30 minutes, 40 minutes, yeah, 45, but I didn't pitch, but I just grabbed the ball and throw it. And then when we got ready to go out to LA, I went to the bullpen and I threw a little off the mound to our bullpen catcher. And uh, then we went out to LA and I just do the same thing, throw in the bullpen. I don't pitch. I just throw. And I did that every day. And I took Sundays off. And the reason I took Sundays off, if Jesus rested on Sunday, Tommy John can too. Right. So you come back in 1976. And by the end of 1976, Tommy Lasorda has taken over as the new Dodger skipper. It's a pleasure for me to introduce Tommy Lasorda. This is the, the greatest day of my life in baseball. He yeah. says to you, we're going to win this thing. We're going to win it because you're going to pitch well for me. And there are a lot of wins left in that arm of yours. That's right. As you talk about and have talked about before, Tommy was probably the greatest motivator the game has ever seen. What did that mean for you when he says that to you? It just meant to me that he has confidence in me and I have confidence in him. And we're going to win because we want to go on to championships. If Lasorda told me, to go bury my dog's poops back a second base, I would have done it because that's that's how I thought about it. Listen, Lasorda was quite a character. Wasn't he known from time to time to call players on the team and ask for a ride to the ballpark? Yes. Yeah. We all lived out there by him. I, we lived in Orange County. I lived in your Belinda. Bert Hooten lived there. Charlie Huff. Joe Ferguson, Billy Russell, and he would call us up and say, hey, I need a ride. Well, here's the manager. The manager of a major league ball club doesn't have a ride. And the reason his wife wants to drive in and they didn't want to have two cars there. He would ask you to make pit stops too, right? Like, let's stop. Let's get some donuts. Let's get some coffee. Let's stop and get donuts and get barbecue and get whatever. One Sunday, one Sunday, he's driving. 
he comes by and picks me up. We had just come back from church and, oh, Tommy, oh, Tommy, my daughter, Tammy, oh, come see Uncle Tommy. Uh, and then uh, my wife said, you want some coffee? Oh, I'd love some. And the guys in the in the car going, come on, let's go. Let's go. We're going to be late. Ah, we're okay. So we get in the car and we stop by one of the donut shops and get donuts and coffee. And we get to the ballpark at Dodger Stadium and he gets dressed. He comes back out. He said, you guys that are here, you're late. I have a hundred dollars <laughs> on my, on my desk. He was the one who drove you. <laughs> and he was the one that drove us. And that's what, <laughs> that's what I told him. And he said, you can't, you can't put all your bricks in this guy's basket. You gotta, you gotta have some on your own, you know? And okay. All right. <laughs> I love the story about you missing the team plane to Philadelphia, but making Tommy think you had been on it all along. Do you remember that story? Yes. And I had him, I had him going and somebody said he wasn't on the plane. And then he find me. And my, my fine was whatever the airline ticket was. Yeah. It was, I don't know, four or $500, whatever. That was my fine. But it was so great because you're supposed to be on the plane to Philadelphia. You missed the flight, but you catch the next flight. And somehow your flight, you pass them in the air somehow. You get, yeah. you, you get to the hotel before them and they're walking up. And he's like, no, you weren't on the plane. But you're like, of course I was. Why, how would I be here if I wasn't on the plane? That's right. He looked at me and I finally gave in and I said, no, nah, I was, I missed the plane, but I, <laughs> but you beat him there anyway. So who cares? Yeah. <laughs> so 1977 was a magical year for you. You win 20 games. And on September 19th, you pitched against the giants at candlestick in a game that would clinch the division for the Dodgers. Tonight's game comes to you from candlestick park in San Francisco, where the Dodgers face the giants. A lot of guys, not like playing a candlestick, but I think you used the rough conditions to give you an edge. Well, you know, guys didn't like it because it was cold. Oh, it's cold. Oh, it's cold. Well, if I pitch good, I'm not going to be out there very long each inning. Right. I, I'm going to throw somewhere between 10 and 20 pitches. Boom. I can, I can put up with that. But if you make it bad, it'll be worse. But if you don't make it bad, it'll be okay. In 77, the Dodgers meet the Phillies in the NLCS, and on October 8th, you face off against Steve Carlton. Welcome to the 1977 League Championship Series. I think the hotel was right across the street from the vet in Philadelphia, and so I think you would wake up, walk to the stadium, and on days that you pitched, did you usually take a nap on the trainer's table? Yes, I did. How, okay, how do you fall asleep? You're getting ready to pitch one of the most important games of your life, and you're able to literally sleep while other guys are coming in to get taped up uh my wife's sitting over here laughing because she said i could fall asleep on a bed of nails <laughs> i could fall asleep i just i would just doze off and uh yeah get ready but uh i love pitching in philly and i love pitching in boston you know and they're yelling and all this you bum you stink you stink you bum that that spurred me on. I, I love that. I love that. With two out in the ninth in that game against the Phillies, October 8th, you struck out Bake McBride and sent the Dodgers to the World Series. One and two, the count to Bake McBride. 
He struck him out. The Los Angeles Dodgers are the National League Eastern Division champions. Tommy John going the distance. A brilliant job by Tommy John. Finished with eight strikeouts, and the Dodgers will go on to the World Series. All I know is we came out and sort of said, we did it, we did it. And I gave my glove to our trainer, and I said, Bill, put this in my locker because guys are throwing water, and I didn't want to get my glove wet. And um, everybody wants to get to the World Series, and we did it. And Lasorda did it for the first time. Huge moment. By 1979, you were playing for the Yankees. You spent time in George Steinbrenner's office at Yankee Stadium. Do you remember the chair that he would have you and other players sit in? Well, it was a a baseball glove. Right, a huge baseball glove, some six feet tall, four feet wide. Yeah, yeah. That was George. Just get the sense that that, like, okay, I've got you in the palm of my hand. <laughs> yeah, that was him. He, he liked that. Yep. Hey, I'll wrap up with this, Tommy. If you could go back in time and attend a game or pitch a game in one old lost ballpark, which one would it be? Old Yankee Stadium. They had, Yankees had the greatest fans in the world. And they would be there cheering and getting you, you know, pumped up, ready to go. Dodger, Dodgers had good fans. But their fans would come in the second inning and leave in the eighth inning so they could beat the traffic on the freeways. But uh, Yankee fans were the they were the best. Hey, Tommy, listen, I really appreciate you taking the time. Four time all star, 26 seasons, 288 wins. It's a privilege to talk to you today. And I, I really appreciate you taking the time and reminiscing about some of the old days. Thank you. Thank you very much. I, I love talking baseball. Honestly, it's it's a little baffling to me how someone with 288 wins is not in the Baseball Hall of Fame. The average Hall of Fame pitcher has somewhere around, I think, 250 wins. Tommy John, 288. And he won 20 games three times. One funny note that I wanted to share with you. Tommy John knew that it was time to retire when in 1989, Mark McGuire got a hit off of him. Mark McGuire's dad was his dentist. And Tommy said, I think after... <laughs> after... Mark picked up a couple hits in a game against him. He said, when your dentist kid starts hitting you, it's time to retire. Boss Ballparks is produced by Ryan Beard, Brian Bingert, Xavier Guerra, Mike Dunn, Kyle Schmidt, Briggs Buckingham, John Carter, and Manny Zavlakis. I'll be back next week with the season four finale of the Lost Ballparks podcast.